Thank you, choir. That's lovely. Friends, as uh, we've said so far a couple times in worship today, we are beginning the season of Advent. Advent is one of two seasons of preparation we have in the liturgical year, the other of which is Lent. And while we come to Advent eager to celebrate Christmas, Advent is both a time of looking backwards to baby Jesus born in Bethlehem and also a time of looking forwards to the end of days when the work began by the incarnation will finally be completed. Because of this, I think Advent can feel a little bit like whiplashy, where we're looking back and forward and back and forward. Uh, We're going to begin with a focus, with more of a focus on our hopes and dreams for when Jesus arrives among us. That's the forward part. But then we'll conclude Advent by looking more backwards, celebrating his arrival to Mary and Joseph. And if that feels a little bit whiplashy, um, let's roll with it and let's see what we can learn from what the word has to say to us this morning. Our sermon series throughout Advent is going to focus on Isaiah. Isaiah was called the, the fifth gospel by so many of the early church leaders and scholars, which is one of the reasons that we're going to be sitting with Isaiah during Advent. There are so many prophecies clearly depicting Jesus Christ, his coming, his advent in Isaiah. This sermon series is going to focus on how the kingdom of peace Jesus is about to bring into this world will look. And we'll take care to look both backwards and forwards, backwards to the story of Christmas, forwards to the coming reign of Jesus Christ over the whole world. So our second reading will come from the prophet Isaiah, the second chapter, verses one through five. You can follow along in your bulletins if you'd like, or you can also uh, use your Red Pew Bibles, beginning on page 631 of the Hebrew Bible. This is Isaiah 2, one through five. Listen now for God's word to you. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, as we place ourselves before your word, we ask you to send your spirit upon us and among us. Let the light of the spirit illuminate your word to us this day. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your word made flesh. Amen. I know that in this season, as I approach the end of the year, I've got a host of feelings, experiences, and yearnings that begin running through my head and my heart. 
There's an opportunity to reflect on the past year, to, to, to recommit myself to goals and dreams that I've needed to defer. Maybe that's the same for you as well. I know for many of us, this season, as we get into December, is a time of mourning, dreams that have died. It's also sometimes a time of confronting, whether internally or externally, people or memories that we wish we could be free of. As the hymn says of the little town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. This is, I think, part of that same whiplashy feel that Advent has. We look back to God perfecting all things in the incarnation, and we look forward to what will come, and we're kind of stuck here in the present, where all is not right with the world. We live in a time of hopes and fears. We live in a time where we look forward to the culmination of our dreams, the hope of all the earth, the desire of every nation, as we sang in our first hymn this morning. And yet not all is right with the world. We've not yet beaten our swords into plowshares. We've not yet taken our spears and shaped them into pruning hooks. Yeah, Jesus has come to set people free from fears and sins, but we are still teaching and learning war. As, as we read the prophecy from Isaiah, I'm reminded of the musical Les Miserables. Some of you may have seen the musical Les Miserables in its Broadway or off-Broadway or in its recent uh, movie form. Um, I, I think particularly of Fantine. Fantine sings a song in Les Mis uh, called I Dreamed a Dream. And um, for those of you who are familiar with the story, you may remember that Fantine is a single mother. And that was a position in society that was stigmatized during the time of the French Revolution, which is when Les Mis is set. Leading up to this song, Fantine has been fired from her job because her supervisor found out she had a child out of wedlock. Needing to make money to care for herself and cassette her daughter, Fantine turns to selling her hair, her teeth, her very self. And as she spirals further and further into desperation, she mourns the hopes that she had when she was younger. She concludes the song with the lament, I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. And when we read Isaiah this morning, when we read of Isaiah's dream of all nations and people flocking to the house of the Lord, flocking to the house of Israel to learn the teaching and the instruction of Israel's God, I mean, just take a look at the world around us today. Is that really going to happen? When we look at reality, it seems to relegate this dream to the type of dream that life has killed. In contrast to Isaiah's hope, when all people can look to the savior of the nations. Friends, we don't even live in a world today where followers of Jesus can get along, let alone when we can be a light to the nations. Is this a dream that's going to end up on the rubbish pile? In her grief, Fontaine seems to regret even having a dream for her life. She mentions that her hope was torn apart and her dream was turned to shame. Uh, the spiral that ends up leading to Fontaine's death, 
she believes would have felt less painful if she had had like lower expectations for her life, if she had had fewer dreams. Now you might be thinking, Pastor, this sure is a downer of a sermon to start Advent. Maybe, maybe lighten things up? I hear you. We're getting there. There's hope. This is the candle of hope that we lit today after all. But hope cannot be real if it only exists in fantasy, right? If there's nothing grounding our hope, what value does it have? I love the promise of turning swords into plowshares. I love the dream of turning spears into pruning hooks. But when I look to the leadership of a country like, say, Russia, I wonder how realistic this promise actually is. Isn't it true that as soon as we take our weapons of war offline and we begin focus on human flourishing, isn't it true that we're going to be vulnerable to an attack from bad actors like Vladimir Putin? Don't we have a moral duty to our people to keep some swords and some spears around? To keep some swords and spears from being melted down into plowshares and pruning hooks? Wouldn't that be the right idea? When we measure it against the real world, the dream that Isaiah prophesies of no more war, no more hostility, no more violence, this seems to require not just nations and people like doing things and taking initiatives and passing policy. It seems to require a sweeping revision to like how the world works because the way the world works now, it just isn't going to fly. In the same way, Fontaine yearns for a change in the way the world works. She, she longs for a world in which men were kind and hope was high and life worth living. Similarly, Isaiah sees a world in which human sin and brokenness don't dictate how we relate to each other, but we somehow find a way to live in peace and harmony. Put another way, Isaiah looks forward to the chosen one of God, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who will come not to wage war, but to bring a kingdom of peace and establish that not just in our world, but in our hearts. And this kingdom of peace is not something that we can just like grit our teeth and try really hard to bring about. If you've been attending this fall, the series of classes we've offered called Long Story Shorter, you've seen the ways in which human beings have tried to bring about peace, to overcome sin, death, and the devil. And it has always failed. We need divine intervention, friends. This hoped-for kingdom of peace requires God to intervene in our world as God reshapes and transforms it through the person and work of Jesus Christ, finally destroying sin, death, and evil. This is the hope and the fear of all the years that has been met in Jesus Christ. And as we join Isaiah in hoping for this kingdom, I want to caution us about a couple of traps we may find along the way. The first trap we've already talked about and that's thinking that Isaiah's dream is unrealistic. The promise of Isaiah is something that we can cling to because what is impossible with human beings is possible with God. The second trap is thinking that we can bring about this kingdom of peace through like passing policies, national or international. For example, like nuclear disarmament. 
To be clear, it may well be the case that ideas like nuclear disarmament may be a net good. Uh, But what I'm saying is that these sorts of initiatives, even if they're beneficial, are going to prove insufficient to bring about the kingdom of peace that Isaiah talks about here. Because if nations can't wage war with nuclear weapons, we'll find other ways to wage war. We're pretty good at that. We need massive structural change that only Jesus can bring within and among us to finally attain a united worldwide kingdom of peace. The third trap is maybe a bit more pervasive. It's thinking that since Jesus needs to totally restructure and transform the world from the ground up to permanently turn swords to plowshares to turn spears into pruning hooks, that there's nothing for us to do. We may as well just live our normal lives not worrying about this promise because God's got it under control. Jesus is going to come and take care of business. It's a tempting line of thought because I think that as individuals, we don't usually have the power to make an appreciable dent in these sorts of institutional, structural issues. They seem beyond the power of any one person to change. But friends, we do have power to make changes and improvements in our personal relationships. I can't change the way that North Korea presents itself to the world. That's a job that's way too big for me. But I can commit to acting in love with friends, with family, with colleagues. I don't have the power to enact national policy, but I do have the power to, as the Romans passage charged us, to live honorably to put on the Lord Jesus Christ in my personal relationships. Friends, there are massive problems in our world today, to be sure. And while Isaiah's dream may seem naive or untethered from reality, similar to Fontaine's, Jesus has come into this world. God has not left us adrift. And Jesus will come again to establish a kingdom, not of conquest, but of peace. Jesus didn't come to wage war against human nations, but to deliver humanity from the grip of sin, death, and evil. These things that have plagued us from the beginning. And this truth gives us an important role to play as we prepare to welcome Jesus into our world during the season of Christmas, looking both behind to when he came in Bethlehem and ahead to when he will come to set all things aright. We are, as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians, ambassadors for Christ. And as Paul says elsewhere, the body of Christ. We are Christ's hands and feet in the world, which means we have work to do. And while this work is not necessarily going to be enacting national or international policies, although depending on your role, it might be, I don't know, but it does certainly involve how we live our lives. The very last verse of Isaiah's prophecy this morning reads, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. As followers of the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, We too are part of the house of Jacob. We too look forward to the kingdom of peace he will bring when he comes again. Therefore, we are also called to walk in the light of the Lord in all we plan, in all we say, in all we do. There's going to be times when living in the light of the Lord will be hard. It's going to mean controlling our tempers. 
It's going to mean avoiding gossip. It's going to mean following through on what we say we're going to do. It's going to mean refusing to speak ill of someone to get a cheap laugh. It's going to mean seeing everyone as an image bearer of God. Friends, these are hard practices to enact in our lives. Yet this is our mission. When we see the institutional and structural sin in our world, it can seem insurmountable. And for us, I think it is. But what is impossible for human beings is possible for God. When we look at how far we have to go before we stop learning war, we can feel paralyzed by the amount of work it's going to take. We might even think that if we dare to believe that Jesus will one day bring a kingdom of peace to this world, we'll end up like Fontaine, regretting that we were naive enough to trust this dream. But the truth is that as we, as each of us begins to walk in the light of the Lord, we will start to see changes happen on institutional and structural levels. They will follow in the wake of our obedience, in the wake of the light of Christ shining through each one of us. Because the nations can only stream to the mountain of the Lord, as Isaiah promises, if each individual in each nation is captivated by the gospel message. Trust that Jesus has come to build a kingdom of peace instead of waging war. And how will they know unless we share that good news by what we do, by what we plan, and by what we say? Friends, on this first Sunday of Advent, this is our hope. And it's a hope grounded in reality. It's not a hope that is divorced from our present moment. Jesus has come once to build a bridge between human rebels and God. Jesus is going to come again to establish God's kingdom of peace. And it's entrusting that that time will come in looking forward to that time that we can prepare to welcome Jesus as he came to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, and as he will come again in glory. May we walk in the light of the Lord by our words and deeds. May we look for ways to live honorably and peaceably with all those God has brought into our lives. And friends, may we trust in the dream, the prophecy that Isaiah had, a dream that one day God will transform the world to be one in which we can melt down our swords and shape them into plowshares. We can melt down our spears and turn them into pruning hooks. And nation will not make war against nation, nor shall we learn war anymore. May it be so. Amen.